0: On Sunday mornings, we've been going through 1 Peter together, so if you want to take your Bibles and join me there in 1 Peter chapter 3, we began the third chapter last week, particularly looking at marriage, so if you weren't here last week, that message is on the website. If you could use some instruction or encouragement from a marital perspective, that's available, and if you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles have some copies of Scripture, just get their attention, they can get you a copy of God's Word to follow along. And this morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8, and we'll go down as far as verse 17. And if we're turned there together, would you stand together with me out of respect for God's word as I read our passage of scripture this morning? 1 Peter 3, beginning in the 8th verse, Peter says, Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And Father, we just humbly ask for your Holy Spirit's assistance this morning as we open the word of God together. Lord, that you'd help us to be attentive and alert To be able to hear exactly what you want to say to us through your word. That, Lord, what you have spoken originally would be exactly what we would hear today presently. And that your Holy Spirit would make application to our hearts in a real personal way. Lord, give us an ear to hear. We pray that you take away, Lord, that which would distract in our minds and in our midst and that you would help us to receive what the voice of God would want to say to each one of us as we continue to worship you now. Bless your word, Lord, we ask in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Do you, like me, sometimes find it hard to sort of keep doing what's good, especially in the midst and the presence, it seems, of so much evil that often surrounds us? If you find that struggle on occasion in your life, please know that you're not alone. That is a struggle of probably all, not only in this room, but it's been a struggle throughout the ages, and you can almost sense that in the things that Peter is writing here. Romans chapter 12 actually tells us in light of those things, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the passage we're looking at together this morning basically is going to give to us some instructions kind of how to live a good life in a fallen world. Or you could say how to live a good life in kind of a really bad and difficult world that we often find ourselves In the midst of. Now remember, the section of the letter we're looking at together, we've seen in our prior studies we've gone through, is basically addressing to us instruction and insight in regards to how, as Christians, we are to interact with other people amidst various different types of relationships. In the recent sections we looked at together, it's addressed how we're to handle relationships among the unsaved world, how we are to as Christians and citizens to relate to our government and to civil authorities in our lives. He's addressed how we are as employees to relate to our employers and how we're to interact and relate as we saw last week in the first seven verses of chapter three in our marriage roles and responsibilities as husbands and wives. Uh, and we've noticed there's been this sort of repeated and recurring theme or themes plural that we've been seeing. Things like submission of ourselves as needed in relationships. Things like respecting other people and giving honor where honor is due and being respectful and honoring other individuals or respecting maybe those who are in authority in different roles. And the idea here continues on now as Peter begins to speak to us about further relationships and how we're to handle ourselves within them. Look with me back in verse 8. You almost sense Peter's sort of trying to make a summary statement as he's still dealing with this issue of relationships and social interactions. He says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender hearted and be courteous. So it seems Peter here, as he says this idea finally, it's almost as if you can tell he's trying to summarize some of his other thoughts. Uh, and it seems he's kind of making a summary statement regarding social interactions that is intended to be very broad and general and to apply to all of us, because he says they're finally all of you it's almost as if he's trying to say listen this this one applies to everybody maybe you could say well that husband and wife thing that doesn't apply to me or i don't have a job so i don't have to worry about dealing with an employer but peter says here this is for all of you for everyone as you function as a group and it appears here that he is speaking to believers among one another he's speaking to church to amidst the believers of God regarding how we should interact with one another as God's family because let's be very real even as there are challenges and even as there are responsibilities that we have in our relationships in all the different areas in order to maintain healthy relationships in our marriages in our families in our job place in the culture in society in our friendships in much the same same way we also need as well to be willing to live submissively and be obedient to god and to his word as well as to walk in love as we interact with fellow christians in god's family as well in fact jesus said in john 13 by this all will know or recognize that you are my disciples if you have love one for another And the Bible here seems to be giving some specific counsel of what that just may look like practically. We find here in verse 8, particularly five short sort of commands or instructions that we are to observe all of us among one another. The first thing he says in verse 8 is, all of you be of one mind. All of you be of one mind. Now, as soon as I read that, I instantly think, say what? how is that possible from what i've seen by way of observation and i just have a family of five but uh, from what i see as soon as you have more than just one person you automatically have more than one opinion more than one preference more than one idea regarding every possible matter under the sun So when I read here, all of you, you know, be of one mind, as I realize as soon as you have two people, you have two thoughts or two perspectives, my thought becomes, wait a minute, as you just then begin to multiply more people with more minds, now you're talking about more opinions and more perspectives and more ideas and thoughts towards different things. So how in the world do you possibly all have one mind? Well, the idea is I think learning, we need to learn how to become submissive mentally in order to function together in harmony. Yes, we have various ideas about things. Of course, we're gonna have differences of opinion and different perspectives on matters and issues, but we need to learn in the love of God to be submissive mentally in a way whereby we do not allow our strong opinions or our personal stubbornness or our personal perspective towards certain things to be something that makes us then relate to people in a way whereby we think that the way that we think is should how everybody should think. And if they don't think that way, then we have a bone to pick or a source of contention. And I need to you know talk to you about that or convince you to my point or so on and so forth. Listen, we need to be careful even among God's family. We need to be very careful that we don't begin to become overly critical or begin to complain, as we saw on Wednesday evening, again, how the congregation of Israel was always complaining. It seems at every turn and every stop, it just seemed to be a repeated weakness among the collective group of the congregation of God. And we even need to be careful because we can, even as Christians, even sometimes begin to get a little contentious. Among a group of individuals. And Ephesians 5 tells us that the spirit-filled believer, it says, should be submitting one to another. That the spirit-filled believer, one of the marks, Ephesians 5 says, is that there's an attitude of submissiveness. There's a mentality that is willing to be submissive to others around us. God's calling us to exercise a, a submissive attitude that desires harmony that is interested in unity, where we can live and operate and function in spiritual unity. Now, certainly, absolutely, on essentials, On vital doctrinal issues, yes, we must be of one mind. We must be like-minded and we must agree on major doctrinal truths. That is absolutely essential. The main things need to be the main things spiritually. However, in light of that, we also need to learn not to get hung up on things that are not so essential on things that are more secondary and aren't necessarily critical in regards to certain things. And all of us should be able at times to submit to the idea of another believer and and to just submit to their idea and, and, and to be willing, even if we don't agree with it, but just to be willing to submit to it and to go along with it. All of us need to develop the attitude whereby we can cooperate with maybe an overall direction with the group of God's people and where it may be going in a larger gathering. The idea is again of being like-minded to submissively embrace the same perspective for the higher purpose of unity. For the understanding of cooperating together, which is essential among God's people. Kind of like a sports team. You know, we look at certain sports teams that do really well together. And sometimes the comment will be made, you know, uh, this team, they have one or two really great, incredible players. But this team, they play well together. And we understand what they mean. They play well together. They know their roles and their positions, but they also just seem to have this like-mindedness. They're not concerned about who's getting recognized. It's just They play very well together. And there's just something about the way they cooperatively function that makes them be more victorious. It helps them to be more successful. And listen, it's a wonderful thing when God's family learns how to be agreeable in such a way that we can serve Harmoniously. Second, Peter says to us in verse 8 here that we also need to have, it says, compassion one for another. The word compassion indicates to feel or to have sympathy, to have care or concern for other people. One man said it this way, it's your hurt felt in my heart. I like that. That's a great definition of compassion. Your hurt felt in my heart. You know, having compassion basically indicates two things. First of all, that I'm sensitive enough to be aware maybe of the distress or difficulty or problem that someone else is going through. And then secondarily, that I'm not just paying attention to that, but I also am concerned enough to want to help alleviate it or do anything I can to bear their burden or to be involved to encourage or to assist them. I think there are always opportunities for us to exercise compassion. Certainly as we see each other go through life struggles, maybe some tragedy happens in a family or maybe a particular individual in God's family is going through a very hard time. Maybe it's a death of a loved one or there's some suffering or something that they're going through that is very difficult and weighty, some trial or hardship. Well, the Bible says that when one member suffers, that we all suffer that we should weep with those who weep. The idea is that there should be a sense of interconnection relationally whereby if someone's struggling, there's something within us that says, you know what, then I should detach from what I'm engaged in and be willing to say, is there any way or somehow a part that I can play big or small to experience some of what this person's experiencing to enter into their hardship and to rally to that spot to want to help them in the midst of their hardship. I think another opportunity there is to exercise compassion as Christians is when someone fails spiritually. Listen, every single person in this room and every person in the body of Christ has their time and their occasion, it seems, or maybe they really fail morally. Maybe somebody shipwrecks spiritually and and just really makes a mess in a certain situation through some bad decisions or uh, whatever. All of us have our little tours of backsliding. And you know what, when somebody fails and, and train wrecks morally or spiritually, that should be a time when we become like spiritual paramedics. When we rush to the site, we rush to the scene, we go to the family or to the individual, and we're not looking like a police officer and say, okay, what's the details and who's wrong and who's at fault? But instead, like a paramedic is like, I don't care what happened. People are bleeding and hurting and what matters right now is some compassion, some help, some assistance. Galatians tells us in chapter 6 verse 1, if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Compassion when someone fails spiritually or morally. I think as well, another area we can learn to have compassion is even with each other's personal weaknesses. Or maybe somebody's just immaturity in an area, or there's something about someone that's sort of just a weakness in their life, and that we would have compassion with each other, that we'd be patient in that sense. You know, perhaps today, if you lack compassion, great opportunity to ask Jesus, who is full of compassion, to produce that compassion in your heart. Thirdly, he says, verse eight, that we also should love as brothers to love as brothers. The idea literally there is to love as brothers should. And here's, here's what I mean by that. I have two brothers. Some of you have siblings and brothers oftentimes are very, very different. Different temperaments, different personalities and likes and dislikes. And because brothers many times are very different, they may not always be socially the best of friends because of their differences and their diversities. However, though they may not be the best of friends, they're also bonded as comrades. If you understand what I'm saying, even though there may be differences and diversities and there may not be a lot of social interaction and connection and this, hey, you're one of my chums and buddies like this other best friend I have. Wonderful. It's like that. But that may not always be the case with brothers because of differences. There may even be friction. Is there not? Among brothers and sisters at times. Look at a typical family. And there could be friction. But that same friction that's there between brothers never negates the fact that when a need arises, I'm your brother. When a need arises, I'm there to assist and to help out somehow. And family love, the Bible is saying, is how we are to interact with each other as the church. Listen, listen, listen. This is not a business, this is not a social club. This is a family. It's a family. This thing that God has designed as a family and so we're to relate to one another like family. I would go so far as to say it is wonderful to have friendships among the church and among God's family. That's fantastic to have some friendships but I don't believe that you have to be best buddies with everybody to still show brotherly love. In the same way, two brothers may not be best buddies but they still understand brotherly love. They still exercise brotherly love and we should walk in that love and devotion and how we interact with each other as God's people because we realize, hey, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the same father and therefore we treat each other and interact from the perspective of, hey, how would a family respond in this kind of situation? Fourthly, notice also he mentions verse 8 that we are also to be tender hearted which means sensitive and caring, concerned about the condition of others. It's the opposite, of course, of being cruel, of being harsh, uh, of not caring, and just sort of being callous. I think it also applies tender-hearted to be someone who has a soft heart. That is, you have a heart that is tender, it's yielded, especially as it comes to relationships. Good question to ask yourself this morning. Have you allowed yourself maybe to become a little cold-hearted, maybe to become a little calloused in the way that you respond to individuals? Have you allowed yourself to get a little closed off or maybe even get a little bitter because of some things that have happened? Hey, if that's the case this morning, I would encourage you, perhaps it would be good to ask the Father in heaven by the fire and the power of his Holy Spirit to sort of melt your heart a little bit, to make your heart tender again, that your heart would be tender towards the things of God and tender towards people among God's family and sensitive in that way. Fifthly, he mentions as well in verse eight there that we are also, he says, to be courteous or your Bible may say humble-minded. The idea there is humbly honoring others as more important to ourselves, respectfully trying to do what would seem to be in the best interest of someone else rather than just yourself all the time. You know, I have found by way of observation in the world, as well as in the church over the years, that often when people are in groups, sometimes they typically just do what they want. And they're completely oblivious to and inconsiderate of the reality that there are actually other people in the room with me. Or there are other people who are part of this process with me. And and somehow there's just a complete disregard. And failing to be conscious of others. And ignoring what we would often call just common courtesy. You know it's that... M word, the manners thing that we tried to learn as we were growing up, our parents were trying to talk to us about. And sometimes as people, we can just fail to be conscious of others. Uh, and the Bible is saying, listen, God's calling us to be humbly thinking about others. Christianity, the Bible tells us about being other centered, considering others better than ourselves, which very simply means that when we do things, we take in consideration the interests of others around us. We think about, hey, not just what would I like to do or what works for me here, but how would this affect others if I do this in this moment? Or how would this potentially you know, have, have an impact on someone else? And just in a sense of common courtesy, being conscious of other people in love, we have enough respect for other people that we we'll use humble courtesy and we conduct ourselves by what we do or don't do in a given moment, thinking about, hey you know what, that might actually cause this to, and we just think through things in that way. And God says, this is one of the ways that you can show love to one another. Just simple consciousness of others around us to be courteous, to be humble-minded, putting others before ourselves. He goes on, verse nine, saying, not returning evil for evil, nor reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So he next addresses how we're to handle, notice, when we're mistreated. Not if we're mistreated, but when we're mistreated. Whether it's verbal insult or some type of mistreatment. He shows in verse 9 here that we are not to react naturally, but we are to respond spiritually. Not react naturally, but to respond spiritually. Now, I'm not sure in verse 9 here, clearly verse 8, it seems Peter's talking about life among God's family. I'm not sure in verse 9 here if Peter's sort of changing gears and now he's back to talking about offenses and mistreatment that happens among the unsaved world that may be ungodly and unkind in their treatment towards us. Or if he's referring to periodically still things that may happen even among God's family. I think either way the same principles apply. But the first thing he clearly says in verse 9 is that, as I said, we are not to react naturally. He says we're not to return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Who in this room would not be honest to admit that the natural response when we're offended is to respond in kind, to give back at least what we got or to bring it up a few decibels Afterwards, and in a sense to intensify in our retaliation to a greater degree, to give back exactly what we experienced. And even at times when we just feel we have been wronged, maybe somebody wasn't even trying to wrong or sometimes we just feel that we've been wronged or our feelings have been wounded, we feel insulted, we are quick to want to react in kind and the Bible says to us here, do not react accordingly but instead. He says, respond. It's one thing to react. That's impulsive. To respond to something different. And he says, not to react naturally, but to respond spiritually because he says here, on the contrary, instead of returning evil for evil and reviling for reviling, on the contrary, he says, blessing, knowing that you were called to this. Now, I'd be the first to admit, that is an absolutely supernatural approach. That does not come naturally. It is hard enough trying to refrain in our reaction or resist the retaliation, yet the Holy Spirit says we're actually called to respond in a Christ-like way, as Jesus did when he was mistreated. We're called to respond by actually blessing someone who mistreats us in a way whereby we're gracious and kind in return. Jesus said this, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, Be good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, let's be very candid. That is absolutely supernatural. It is only as we are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and open to the power and the enablement and the help of the Holy Spirit that any of us can do that. I mean, that is extremely, extremely difficult. We need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. But listen what's being talked about here in many ways is the defining mark of Christianity in a culture because it is not the way the world responds it is not the way anyone want to respond It is natural for us when we are insulted, when we are hurt, when we are wounded, to do something, whether consciously and immediately or contemplatively in a subconscious way, eventually we are going to retaliate in some capacity. And here the Bible says, don't just retaliate, instead return good. Bless them back somehow, do something that Jesus would do. And it's only as we submit to Christ that such is possible, but often it's what defines and distinguishes us because it blows the world's mind if we could actually do such a thing. And notice he speaks of a reward that God promises to the one who by faith is willing to do that. He says, to this, you were called that you may inherit a blessing, so here's what God's saying to us. Each time you submit to the Holy Spirit and not your flesh, when someone wounds you or they insult you or you're mistreated, and you in that moment, rather than reacting, you submit to the Lord, you respond spiritually by the grace of God's help, and you sow the seed of a righteous response which is to not retaliate, but instead to return some blessing or kindness, the Bible says as a result, God's promises is as you sow that seed, you will reap a blessing. That somehow God will bring blessing into your life for doing such to honor him. Perhaps currently you're facing something like this. Maybe you've been getting mistreated on the job site. Maybe something's been happening recently that's been hurtful and painful. Or maybe this week you may experience something like this. Hey, here's a chance to put into practice the word of God by faith. Don't react naturally, but instead respond spiritually and believe that God will bless you for it. And see how God works According to his word. But once again, as Peter then goes on, we see that he as many times before quotes the word of God to sort of validate and to reinforce his spiritual beliefs and his instruction. Look, as he goes on in verse 10, he's now quoting from Psalm 34. He quotes from Psalm 34 here and basically what Peter does in verses 11 or 10, 11 and 12 is he quotes from Psalm 34 is as he's done many times. We take notice of this as we've gone through is Peter says, look, I'm not just saying these things because they're my convictions. He's saying what I'm saying lines up with scripture. This is why I believe what I believe. This is why I'm saying what I'm saying. And he actually uses scripture to validate his perspective and his viewpoint. Verses 10 through 12 basically illustrate the instruction he just gave in verse 9. He says, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter begins now as he starts to illustrate the instruction and promise he just gave in verse 9. First of all, in verse 10 there, he says, he who would love life, the idea is he who would enjoy, find pleasure in life, and who wants to see good days. So Peter says, look, do you want to have an enjoyable life? Do you want to have good days on the earth? Do you want to experience a life that's enjoyable and pleasurable for all its days? The anticipated answer, of course, would be, sure, who doesn't? Peter says, great, I'm going to tell you how. The Bible says, look, there is a way to have a good life. God wants you to have a good life. God wants you to experience a good life that's enjoyable on this earth. And take note with me that God's word, quoting here from Psalm 34, is gonna explain to us a few ways of how we can have a good and enjoyable life. And in light of that, as a sidelight, I would say this. Take note that God says the way to experience a good and enjoyable life is to choose by faith to just live submissively and obediently according to what the Word of God says. And you can have a good and enjoyable life. Now, in conjunction with that, let me say, if you want to experience a bad life here on the earth, if your goal is you want to be miserable, frustrated, empty and dissatisfied, and and you you want to struggle constantly, and you want to really end up hating your life, then just disregard everything that's said here. In fact, better just disregard the whole Bible. Disregard the whole Bible, live according to the world's standards, your ideas, and your thoughts and feelings in every relationship situation, and you can have a really bad life. You can really be miserable. You can hate your life every night you lay your head down on your pillow at night. Or if you wanna have a good life and an enjoyable life, God says, just follow my word. Live according to my word, follow its precepts, trust its promises, And you can actually have a good and enjoyable life so if you desire such he says pay attention he says i'll show you how you can have a good life and see good days he tells us particularly three things first of all he says in verse 10 there let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit so first thing the bible points out to us here regarding how to have an enjoyable life is we have to learn how to have self-control in our speech and in the things that we say. Particularly, we should avoid saying, it says, evil things. That is, talking in ways that are wicked, speaking in ways that are hurtful and ungodly and and sinful. And we also, he says, must refrain from speaking in deceit. The idea is being deceptive. Another way of saying that is don't lie. Don't be dishonest. Tell the truth in matters. Don't be someone who's dishonest in your social interactions or your personal relationships. Hey, this morning, can I ask you by way of self-evaluation, how are you doing in that area? In any way that you're interacting with people, are you being wise and cautious and careful in the way that you speak to people? Are you putting a guard over your lips and a gate over the door of your mouth and at times choosing not to say something that may not be real helpful, good, godly, and edifying and keeping control over what you say and what you don't say. In your relationships and your social interactions, are you being deceptive with anyone? Are you being dishonest with your spouse or dishonest or deceptive with others in relationships? The Bible says that's not going to lead to a good life. If you want to have a good life, be a forthright person. Even when you mess up, even when you make mistakes, blow the stinking horn on yourself. I blew it. I messed up. I made a mistake. The Bible says, walk in the light. Listen, honesty. Just honest. Hey, I did this. Blow the horn. The sooner you do that, the better for you and the better for relationships. It leads to a good life. I think many of us can have compassion on failures because we all fail. What we have very little compassion for is when somebody fails and then are deceptive about it or they do things and they're dishonest regarding it. So he says, just use your speech in a prudent way. Be self-controlled. Be honest rather than deceptive. Secondly, he says in verse 11 there, let him turn away from evil and do good. And there the idea is, secondarily, we need to learn to steer away from what's wrong and pursue what's right. It says that we should turn away steer clear of avoid that which is evil and there are always going to be opportunities to do what's evil to people and there's always going to be opportunities to do what's evil with people and the bible is telling us here we need to be willing and wise enough to turn away from sinful doorways when they present themselves to us. Appetizing as they may be, tempting as they may be. And one way to avoid turning away from evil, many times is just to occupy yourself with doing what's good. If you're occupied doing what's good and and spending time with those who are good rather than those who are bad in a sense by way of their character and their conduct, in many ways you can avoid doing what's evil. Oftentimes, it boils down to simply, many times, maybe who we're spending time with or who we're staying clear of. And as well, let me add this. Don't allow yourself to be isolated and to sit idle and to stare at evil opportunities. Because if you isolate yourself and stare at evil opportunities, eventually you're going to cave but if you preoccupy yourself with doing good and being with those who are doing good and you stay in that place often to pursue what is right and do what is good makes it much, much easier to just resist them. what's wrong. And the Bible tells us clearly that we can overcome temptation if we choose to. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to men, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear up under it. So the bible says god is always faithful we are never in a sense some special case where it's so much harder for us and the temptation that we're experiencing or enduring god says no i am faithful i know what you can handle there's nothing in a sense more difficult happening to you than happens to every other person on occasion on the earth and god says there's always a way of escape look for the way of escape find it take that exit ramp before you enter into something that would be evil and many times by just staying on the road that's good you can avoid those detours that would lead to places that are unhealthy and God's word also in a sense is teaching us that we can avoid unpleasant circumstances and we can experience good fruit in our lives many times just by our life decisions and actions that's what the word of God teaches us regarding sowing and reaping and it works both ways if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. Look, you cannot sow into doing something evil and then pray for crop failure. It doesn't work. If you sow evil in some way in your life, you're going to reap the unpleasant fruit of that in your life. In the same way, if you sow to doing what's good, you're going to have a good life. You're going to reap the good fruit of those good choices and good decisions. What we need to learn to do is to be wise enough to consider the end of things. When you make decisions, realize you just planted a seed. So before you plant the seed, take into consideration in small matters and in huge decisions, hey, I'm going to plant this seed. What kind of fruit does this seed produce? And here God's saying, I want you to have a good life, so make good decisions, turn from evil, do what's good. And thirdly, he also says, let him also seek peace and pursue it. So here's a third area. The Bible tells us that we can contribute to to have a good life is to be peacemakers who sincerely try to resolve things. When there's conflict, it doesn't just say be a peaceful person. It says seek peace. Pursue peace, go after peace. We're all familiar with the natural human response and conflict and fights and how people respond sinfully, but the Bible says, Romans twelve eighteen if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as it depends on you, God says, contrary to the way other people handle conflict, as a child of God, emulating the forgiveness and love of Jesus Christ, we should seek the higher road spiritually. We should be those who seek peace, who pursue it. That is, we should be the ones who are taking steps towards resolution. We should be those who humble ourselves and put forth efforts of reconciliation and pursue restoration. And notice in all three of these things mentioned here, there's instructions to do what's righteous and to avoid evil. Instead, what's evil. And notice he says verse 12, and then God relates to us accordingly. Look what he says, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he speaks here in a sense of how doing good causes us to inherit God's blessing, and doing evil causes us to, in a sense, bring about God's disapproval and act against us. He speaks of God's attention in the beginning of verse 12, saying the Lord's eyes are going to be upon us. The idea is he'll look upon us favorably because he approves what we're doing. And with good pleasure, he's attentive to our situation and, and he's at work to help us. He's watching over us. His favor is upon us as we do what's obedient to the word of God. He's attentively listening to answer our prayers But he also warns the end of verse 12 of God's disapproval whereby we can force God to act against us. He says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So when someone does what's wrong, when they ignore the word of God, we can cause God to actually begin to work in opposition against our lives. To begin to have to correct us or discipline us whereby he is trying to break or humble our disobedient spirit. Or to work in a way whereby he's correcting us for our wrongdoing because he doesn't want to let our evil path prevail because that's not good for anyone. And so at times, God will actually be forced to work against our wrong paths to make them fall apart, to in a sense wreck our ships before they even get out of the dock to work against us to actually help us so that he knows that we are going to preserve ourselves from greater misery and failure down the road. Now, in light of that, would you agree if I had to pick... I had to pick, I would much rather have God's approval. I'd much rather have God's approval and favor and blessing on my life and his eyes on me attentively and his ears open to me to help me than I would have God cause to have to work against me in my life. Very simply put, God wants to bless your life. It would sure be a shame for you to curse it. God wants to bless your life. And yet many a times by the way that we respond, we can experience his blessing or we can invoke him to have to work in opposition to us. In a sense, we curse ourselves. Peter goes on verse 13 to ask sort of a question now. He says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now in that question, I think Peter sort of reveals something and at the same time, he also assures us of something. The thing he sort of reveals to us is this what kind of a person or you might say what type of a person would actually harm someone for doing good right I mean what kind of a person would harm someone for actually following what's good well the answer is simple someone who's not right with God and if someone's not right with God they may very well actually try not only hinder but harm someone for following after what's good But God wants us to know that such a person, if they're not right with God and they're struggling with God, they have a much bigger problem than what they're doing to me and you. And that person needs prayer. That person needs to see the love of Jesus in such situations. And perhaps God is also trying to assure and reassure us, look, If you are concerned about being harmed for following after what's good, well, they're going to hurt me. They're going to take advantage of me. It's almost as if the Lord is trying to say, listen, didn't I just say that if you do what's right and righteous, my eye's going to be on you and I'm going to be listening and aware of everything that's going on and my favor will be with you and he can preserve and protect us. The Bible says God can turn the curse into a blessing in our lives. I think it's just wise to consider as well it could also be said, when you and I are following what's good, is it not true? It's probably going to be a lot less likely that people are going to want to harm you. If you're following and just doing what's good, chances are a lot less people are going to want to harm you. If you're always doing what's wrong, you're going to have a lot of people who are going to want to harm you because you're doing what's wrong. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 16:7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Listen, when you do good, many times you just diminish people wanting to do something towards you that's harmful because people have a general sense of conviction in their heart and God can work in people's hearts in such a way to provide preservation over your life. He then goes on, verse 14, but even if you should suffer, he says, for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Yeah, the Bible actually says that. My mind does not agree with that. But from God's perspective, just like Jesus experienced suffering, sometimes we do as well. Jesus said in the same way, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Peter says as well, verse 14 there, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Here, Peter's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, an Old Testament story where God's people were in grave danger. And Peter reminds us now as he pulls from that, that oftentimes a great deal, would you agree, of the suffering that we experience for righteousness sake is a sense where we feel either mentally nervous of what's going to happen because of our stand for what we believe in, or we're verbally insulted because of what we choose to believe and what we're going to stand for. And it's natural then to get a little intimidated and to begin to be fearful and think, man, you know, what's going to happen if I stand for this? And, and we begin to worry. And God says to us here, despite what you're thinking or what others are saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't let it intimidate you. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. We need to fear God more than fear man. He says, verse 15 as well, but then sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. So when we're verbally assaulted or mistreated for righteousness sake because of what we believe or maybe we took a stand for righteousness in a situation, God says there is a right and proper response that can actually yield a productive and beneficial outcome. And that begins with In that opportunity, yielding ourselves afresh, notice, to the authority of Jesus over our lives. He says here, sanctify the Lord in your heart. One translation says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Here's what it's saying to us. When you're mistreated when I'm insulted, when the uncomfortable or painful thing happens, maybe we stood for righteousness in a situation and someone really gets upset with us because of what we believe or the stand that we take for what's right. In such situations, the Bible is saying it is important in that moment to make a conscious choice to enthrone Jesus in your heart afresh and to say, Jesus, you are Lord. I want to do what pleases you. Please do not let me respond according to my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, my hurt. But Lord, I enthrone you and help me to submit to you as your servant, to do what pleases you in this situation, to do what honors you. We set apart the Lord in our hearts as the ruler of our heart once again. And he also says that we should secondarily be prepared to give a reasonable explanation to those who may be asking us questions in those moments. Because often when something harmful happens and you don't respond the way everybody else responds or you don't respond the way that person knows I can't believe the way you're responding after what I just said to you or after what I just did to you it causes curiosity to begin to develop. And sometimes people will ask why do you respond the way you respond? How in the world can you choose to respond like that when someone just talked to you like that or when the boss just treated you like that or how how can you... And listen, it says, be ready, be prepared, because you can then have a reasonable explanation, give a defense for the hope that's in you. In other words, why you believe what you believe and why you respond the way that you respond. That word defense is apology. It's where we get our English word apologetics, which refers to a logical, sensible explanation. And we need to capitalize when there are moments when we can give a reasonable explanation to people of why we believe what we believe, he just cautions us here to be wise and sensitive in our attitude and our tone. He says, make sure you do such with meekness and fear. Again, when we give an answer or an explanation for what we believe, we want to make sure we don't get arrogant, that we're not aggressive, uh, that we're not rude or condescending, but we're courteous and respectful in how we share what it is that we do believe. He says, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, they may revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed for it is better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, isn't it amazing the Bible actually shows us here to consider that a believer's good conduct in Christ can actually cause them to be defamed as an evildoer. But have you noticed something in our culture recently? Just like in Peter's day, which was a very anti-Christian culture in the Roman days, that, that to be good and to do what is good in Christ and to honor Christ sometimes causes us to actually be defamed as an evildoer to be the actual problem because you're doing what's good in regards to what would honor Christ. And he says handling such situations righteously, keeping a good conscience is intelligent because it makes people ultimately wrestle with the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their own heart of you should be ashamed for mistreating that person who's doing good. And the spirit of God can convict the heart of a person, like Peter said back in chapter two, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. He says here in verse 17, it is better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He sort of repeats what we already talked about back in chapter two. And here he actually adds that our suffering at the hands of others At times which may happen, it says sometimes, take notice of the text there, verse 17, is the will of God. It is very unfortunate that there are those who teach and try and say that it is never God's will for a Christian to suffer. The Bible knows nothing of that. Sometimes suffering, particularly for doing what's good as Christ did, is the will of God. It's a part of God's will for our lives because it develops me spiritually. And God's saying it also gives an opportunity for powerful testimony. You know, I want to close this morning by reading you this story that I found, I think illustrates this last point. Just give me your attention for two more minutes as I read this, as it illustrates what this is actually saying here. It says When Hadrian was the emperor of Rome, he waged war against Christians in the empire a group of 40 believers gathered together to worship in Northern Italy. Soldiers surrounded them and said, upon the order of the emperor, your worship of this so-called king of the Jews must cease immediately or you will be executed. Do what you will, answered the 40 Christians, even if it costs us our lives. So the Roman soldiers took them into a mountainous region and it was winter time and the small lake in that area was completely frozen over. The captain of the guard said, here is one more opportunity for you to deny Jesus Christ or we will place you on that lake all night until each of your bodies freeze. It's better to freeze for a night than to burn in hell for eternity, answered the brave believers. So the 40 believers took off their clothes and sat naked all night on the ice. With teeth chattering and knees knocking, they sang 40 brave soldiers for Christ as the Romans looked on them and mocked them. Occasionally the captain would call out, come to your senses, men. Deny Jesus this moment. Come and be warm by the fire and be saved. But the 40 believers would not budge and kept singing, 40 brave soldiers for Christ. 40 brave soldiers for Christ. After about an hour, one of the Christians stood up, unable to endure the pain any longer. He ran towards the soldiers saying, I deny Jesus Christ. After one of the brothers had left them and turned away, they still began to sing, only they changed their song to 39 Brave Soldiers for Christ. One of the Roman soldiers observing this scene was so moved that he stripped off his clothes, ran out upon the frozen lake, and said, No, 40 Brave Soldiers for Christ. 40 Brave Soldiers for Christ. Listen, your faithfulness to your commitment to Jesus Christ may have an impact upon one person's life that you may never imagine. Stay faithful to Jesus. Shall we stand together?